Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Molly. I nearly suffered a car accident whilst trying to send this message. My dogs nearly flew from, uh, from seat. Uh, but yeah, um, sending you this message while I drive after a forest walk with my dogs in between going to my last session of one-on-one therapy. And the reason why I'm sending you this message is because, yeah, I cried my eyes out when I was in the forest because I'm saying goodbye to my therapist. And I was thinking about how grateful I am for him. And, well, I couldn't not thank you as well because I don't think I would be where I am today if it wouldn't be for him, but also for you. I had like one and a half year of or one year of waiting time before I started therapy. And that was the moment that I found your podcast. And it was such a hurting, confusing, complicated time of my life. I was going through so much. And yeah, listening to you every week made everything better. And I felt very validated. I felt like my experience was real, which sometimes is hard to conceive. I just really want to thank you. And if any of my friends are listening to this, I am so embarrassed because I recommended this podcast to everybody and everybody loves it. So if you're playing this on the podcast, hi, friends. All this focus, focus is supposed to be scientific. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power. You just didn't know that. And now you do. Here on this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, 
as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. If you're new here, welcome. And also, hi to (laughs) Fabrizia's friends. I love that you said you've recommended this to everyone. So anyone that is now listening, because you've been recommended to listen by Fabrizia, hi. And thank you, Fabrizia, for this beautiful voicemail. I'm really happy you didn't get into a car accident and that your dog is okay. Please don't send me voicemails when you're driving. (laughs) I don't want to be liable for any car accidents, but I'm glad you're okay. And congratulations on graduating from therapy. I know how big of an accomplishment that is. And I'm so happy that my podcast could be here for you as a little bit of a holding safe space until you could get into therapy and then also be a companion for you through that process. It means the absolute world to me. So we're back. And we are on part four of our deep dive exploration of shame. On the first few episodes, we've covered the importance of shame and why we need it, how it develops. We explored toxic shame. And then on our last episode, we really dived into how toxic shame can manifest as the core of all addictions, of how it contributes to codependency and shows up as what is known as BPD or NPD, and really how we alienate ourselves with toxic shame. Today, we're going to be talking about the sources of toxic shame within the family system and how in dysfunctional family systems, This toxic shame is insidiously passed down from generation to generation so that hopefully you will be able to be more conscious of these dynamics, also to be able to have compassion even for your family or your ancestors and for yourself because this is an unspoken epidemic that is affecting so many people all over the world. And to be able to shine the light of awareness on this, that is true alchemy, is being able to transmute it. The moment that we shine light on something and bring it out of the shadows, the less power it has over us. So let's dive into it. The thing about toxic shame is that for the most part, it grows and populates in our most significant relationships. So the chances are, if you don't really value someone very much, it's not very easy to be shamed by things that they say or do. Toxic shame begins with our source relationships, which are our caregivers. So if our primary caregivers are shame-based people, they will pass that toxic shame onto us if they're unconscious of it. There's no way to teach a child how to value themselves and foster healthy shame if 
we don't value ourselves and understand toxic shame ourselves. Toxic shame is generational. It's passed down from one generation to the next. And shame-based people find other shame-based people, get married, scramble their DNA up together, as my favorite podcaster, (laughs) Dan Savage says. He says that people scramble their DNA up together. They have kids. And this couple, this shame-based couple, carries the shame from their own family system, marries them together, and passes it on to their children. And when there is a marriage that's grounded in unconscious shame, the most common outcome of a partnership like this is going to be a lack of intimacy. It's really hard to let someone get close to you if you feel somehow defective and flawed as a human being. So these shame-based couples maintain this non-intimacy through really poor communication, circular and immature fighting, game-playing, manipulation, control games, withdrawal of love and attention to punish people, and blaming. And also something called confluence. Confluence is an unspoken agreement to never disagree. Confluence looks like elephants in the room. Don't talk about X, Y, Z. And this silent agreement that shame-based families enter into together, this confluence creates a fake intimacy. This is what Patrick Tian, who I really like his content. If you search him on YouTube, he does a lot of stuff about childhood trauma. I'm actually going to be having him on the podcast soon. It creates this sense of offness. Patrick in his content talks a lot about things that feel off in toxic family systems. When you feel like everything is great, I had all my basic needs met, but just something feels off. You didn't feel like your family was really a family. That could be because of confluence, this agreement to never disagree, this hidden shame. So when, as a child, you're born to shame-based parents, already the deck is stacked against you from the beginning because your parents' job is to model and mirror. But modeling includes how to be a fully psychologically sound, well human being, how to relate intimately with others, how to feel, acknowledge, and express emotions and move past them, how to fight fairly and disagree in a way that is constructive instead of destructive, how to have physical and emotional and intellectual boundaries, how to communicate in a mature way, how to cope and survive with life's inevitable ups and downs, how to be self-disciplined and keep our word to ourselves, how to love ourselves, how to love other people. This was meant to be modeled to you. So if you didn't have that modeling, maybe don't beat the shit out of yourself because you never had it shown to you. And you might've had shame-based caregivers 
because shame-based caregivers can't do any of this. Why? Because they don't know how. Children desperately need their parents' time and attention. And giving our time is part of the work and showing up. That is love. It means being there for your child, attending to their needs and feelings, and not being a grown-up adult child yourself and being overwhelmed by the needs and emotions of your child. It's very common, especially today, but many of us would have experienced this too in previous generations. I'm talking to maybe people who are parents now. For example, many parents think that they spend a lot of time with their kids, but many times you see that that time is actually consisting of maybe the parent being in the same room and being on their phone while their child plays in the same room. And maybe if that kid makes too much noise, you tell them to quiet down. That is not quality time. That is quantitative time. Part of the work of love is truly listening. Children are very clear about what they need and they will tell you what they need. The problem is, is that shame-based parents often don't listen to their child because Listening and tuning in and understanding those needs requires a certain amount of emotional maturity that many people right now don't have even a tiny bit of that. To be able to listen well to children, a parent needs to have had their own needs met. If someone is still caught up in their own neediness and they're basically a grown-up child, It's hard to listen to your own child. Our own neediness is like a persistent pain in the neck or a toothache, right? Think about the last time you had kind of a chronic pain and someone was trying to talk to you and you almost feel really grouchy and you're like, yeah, 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 it's fine. And they're like, are you good? And you're like, sorry, I have a really bad headache right now. So it's hard for me to show up. So when we're shame-based or you are a shame-based caregiver, you're only able to focus on that dull toothache of your shame. Needy, shame-based caregivers can't possibly take care of their kids' needs. When a child is shamed because they're needy, it means that that child's needs are clashing with this grown-up toddler parent's needs. The child then grows up and becomes an adult. But underneath that mask of seemingly adult behavior, there is a tiny child inside who is neglected. And this needy child is like a vortex of need and clinging and immaturity. And what that means is that When this child becomes an adult, when we are shame-based and we grow up without conscious awareness of that, it's almost like we have this gaping hole in our soul. We can never get enough as an adult. And if you feel that sense, like it's like there's never enough love, there's never enough attention, there's never enough, nothing really hits the spot. It's because it's actually your childhood needs that need to be met. So if you are the kind of person 
who gets into a relationship in the early stages, like many of you who call into my podcast, you ask me so many questions about this. You get into a new relationship, you always go a little too far. Maybe you are perceived to be a little too much and you actually kind of push people off because of these insatiable needs that you have. Maybe you meet someone, you hit it off and you immediately start talking to them or even thinking about marriage, children. You start planning your whole lives together even after just one date. So once maybe this person falls for you too, you expect a lot of them. Maybe you even subconsciously expect them to show up and provide for you and provide for your needs in a way that a mom or a dad might. And it's important to remember that needy children need their parents. So when we're adult children with this unconscious toxic shame, we place the burden on our partners. We turn our lovers, our partners into parents, and we expect them to fill this gaping, empty hole inside of us. And we turn into this emotional vampire vortex of clinging and expectation. And I can imagine you can relate to this and it's almost like you can even know that you're doing this, but you can't stop and you just watch all of your relationships blow up in front of you and it's incredibly painful. And this is how shame-based, needy, clinging, vortex relationships turn into the same types of marriages and they create shame-based, needy, dysfunctional families with children who are carrying on those wounds. And as children, they then grow up in almost this toxic soil of shame rather than a healthy garden that is nurturing and providing and creating this safe container for us to be able to grow and learn to meet our own needs. These types of shame-based families, they create their own laws their own social systems. So when a system, a community and social system is dysfunctional, it is rigid. It's closed. It's frozen. All the people in these dysfunctional families are enmeshed into this kind of dissociated frozen ice. And the only thing that they want to do is maintain the status quo take care of this system's need for balance and don't upset the toxic system. That's the only goal. Children of these types of systems then go out into the world, into society. And each of these different types of social systems, they go to school, they go to work, they engage in communities, maybe they go to church, whatever. And These different social systems then also add their own unique element of toxic shame into the process. So for example, if you grew up within a shame-based dysfunctional toxic family and you go to a fundamentalist Christian church that is also very shame-based, it's just adding more shame on top of shame on top of shame. And this is very common. 
So I'm going to read next a passage from a book by John Bradshaw called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And John Bradshaw was a therapist who worked with toxic shame. He has massively influenced this entire series. And there's a part in his book that provides a case study of one of his clients who, of course, he changed the name. And this guy is named Max. And this case study provides a really painful but accurate example of the impact dysfunctional families that are rooted in toxic shame and the echoing effects that that can have in an individual's life. So let's go into Max's story. Max was perhaps the most tragic figure I encountered over a 20-year period of counseling. He came to me at age 44. I liked him instantly. Everyone seemed to like him. His problem was one I'd never heard of before. Max ran away. He had done it nine times. At certain points in his life, most often when he was doing very well and the pressures of success were mounting, he would just pack up his car with a few necessities and start driving. He would leave everything. Clothes, furnishings, family partner, and job. Max was a sales engineer. On his ninth runaway, he left his five children, all under 17. They'd come to live with Max after he divorced his third wife. Three children were from his first marriage, the fourth from his second, the fifth from his third. As I talked to Max, the deep hurt and pain of his life was apparent. His shame was more apparent. In fact, Max's life was a metaphor of internalized shame. He embodied many of the faces of shame and was the product of the major sources of shame. He also acted out many of the major cover-ups of shame. He broke eye contact continually when he talked. He frequently blushed. He was painfully self-conscious and hypervigilant. Sometimes he would defiantly look me in the eyes and make a matter-of-fact statements about the things that he had done, severely condemning himself. But then he would follow with this long delusional description of how he'd been responsible and successful. When I gently confronted his denials, he would become energetically reactive and defensive and sometimes fly into a rage. What became clear to me was his despair his desperate loneliness, and his shame-based hopelessness. Although he was gifted intellectually and evidently a skilled salesman and engineer, he would subject himself to the most demeaning jobs during his runaway periods. He'd been a janitor, a dishwasher, a garbage man's helper, a lumberjack, a stagehand, a short order cook, and on his last trip, as he referred to it, he collected and sold aluminum cans. Max, although he was quite attractive to women, always stayed alone and celibate on his trips or his runaways. He was tall, 6'3", and incredibly handsome. By the time he saw me, he was impotent with women. This was partly due to years of isolation, chain-smoking marijuana, and sexualizing other women. Max was what Pat Games, in his book, Out of the Shadows, calls a level one and two sex addict. Level one sexual addiction involves the following. 
multiple affairs or sex partners, compulsive masturbation with or without pornography, chronic cruising. In other words, always like looking and going out for sexual opportunities. Level two involves voyeurism, exhibitionism, indecent liberties, and lewd phone calls. Carnes also speaks of level three sexual addiction, which includes incest, rape, and molestation. The levels of sexual addiction refer to the level of victimization and legal punishment accompanying the sexual act. Levels two and three always have a victim and are punishable by law. In Max's case, he had multiple affairs during his three marriages. During the early part of his second marriage, he'd engaged in voyeurism. He described the voyeurism he engaged in with a great feeling of degradation and shame. And on one occasion, he hid in the branches of a tree for three hours to get a two-minute glimpse of a young woman in her bra and underwear. Max also cruised shopping malls, engaging in subtle forms of indecent liberties. And by the time Max came to me for counseling, he'd completely given up on any relationship with women. He was isolated and without any real relationships of any kind. He'd resigned himself to a menial job as a bookkeeper in a hardware store. Max's children were all addicts. His oldest daughter was already in her second marriage at just 26 years of age. She was a severe caretaker codependent who confused love with pity. She found men who were down and out and nourished them back to health. Her second husband was an ex-European drug dealer who served time for drug dealing in France. Max's two sons and daughter from his second marriage were all serious drug addicts and had major problems with sex and relationships. The youngest, a male child from his third marriage, had been arrested and jailed four times for violent alcohol and drug-related behavior by the age of 13. I saw Max off and on for almost seven years. Just when I thought we were making progress, Max would quit and he would run away from me. I became more and more involved with Max than any counselor really should. Max hooked onto my own shame and codependency. I desperately wanted to help Max so much that I was overly invested in the outcome of our work. In September of 1974, Max died at the age of 52. This was the exact age his own father had died. Max had a grandiose, melodramatic quality to his personality. At the same time, there was a true generosity and nobleness about him. His compassion for the suffering of others was boundless. He died of emphysema in the back ward of a public county hospital. At his funeral, I cried in a way that I could never have imagined. Max represents all shame-based people. I said he died of emphysema, but what he really died of was toxic shame. His internalized shame was the source of his codependency and chemical and sex addictions. Max was the everyman representation of toxic shame. His life, from beginning to end, illustrated the sources and the insidious power of toxic shame. His dysfunctional family of origin, his shame-based parental models, his multi-generational family history, his abandonment issues, 
his experience at school, his religious background, and the shaming culture which we all share with him are the sources of toxic shame. I hope that this vignette of Max from John Bradshaw's book was helpful. And if you'd like to read that whole book, it's called Healing the Shame That Binds You. But I wanted to read that because it really gets us in the mindset of how this all plays out. And you might know someone in your life that reminds you of Max. Maybe Max reminds you of yourself. And it's my hope that this vignette can be a wake-up call for many of us and how important it is for us to become conscious of these toxic dynamics. Now, as we began discussing in the beginning of this particular episode, we talked about how toxic shame originates interpersonally and primarily in our most significant relationships because our most significant relationships are our source relationships, which occur in our original families. Judith Bardwick is a speaker and author who wrote a book called In Transition, How Feminism, Sexual Liberation, and the Search for Self-Fulfillment Have Authored America. And in this book, she writes, Marriage and thus family are where we live out our most intimate and powerful human experiences. The family is the unit in which we belong from which we can expect protection from uncontrollable fate, in which we create infinity through our children, and in which we find a haven. The stuff that family is made of is bloodier and more passionate than the stuff of friendship, and the costs are greater too. It's in our families where we really first learn about ourselves, The core of our identity, as we've described in episodes previous to this in our series, comes from the mirroring eyes of our primary caretakers. And the way our lives play out, our destiny depends to a massive extent on the physical and emotional health and levels of self-awareness of our caregivers. So in the case of Max, who we just heard about, his tragic story from John Bradshaw's book, his father, Jerome, was a fully-fledged alcoholic and what John described in his book as a, quote, womanizing sex addict. So Max's dad was shame-based. He'd been abandoned by his father and raised by a really emotionally incestuous alcoholic mother and emotional incest basically just looks like parentifying a child treating he she treated max like basically more of a partner than a child expected him to step up and be like a little man for her right and in the book max also described his grandmother as being a very frightening scary person so by the time max was eight years old His mother, Felicia, had divorced his father, Jerome. And from eight years on, Max was neglected emotionally and financially. His older brother, Ralph, took over the role of being Max's dad. 
and his older sister Maxine took also on a mothering role. So Max's brother and sister became like his little parents. Max's mom and dad married when they were just 17 and 18 years old, and they got married because they became pregnant with Max's older sister, Maxine. Felicia, Max's mother, came from a very religious Christian family, and the family demanded that Max's dad, Jerome, marry Felicia. Felicia was very prude and shy and shut down emotionally, She carried her own mother's repressed sense of shame-based sexuality, and her mother had been sexually violated by her own father, who was also an alcoholic, and also was molested by two of her nine brothers. Max's mom, Felicia, had never dealt with her sexual abuse and the incest within her family and carried them inside of her as her shame secret. So now while on the outside, Max's mom, Felicia, was proper but very prude and proud of her religious spirituality and Christianity, she had acted out that sexual shame of her mother and ended up getting pregnant at 17. Felicia had also been sexually molested by her maternal grandfather. Now, Max's mom, Felicia, was her father's emotional spouse. She became his little girl and confidant after her mother withdrew because of severe hypochondria. So Max's dad was also the emotional caretaker of his mother. He was her little man and became her surrogate spouse. So both of Max's parents were never allowed to be children. They were little stand-in partners for their parents. And this means that they were both emotional incest victims. And in the case of Max's mother, she was actual incest, sexual incest victim. Both Max's parents were completely shame-based. They were codependent and grew up in houses with serious addiction issues. Max's mom, Felicia, was dutiful, but she was completely cold. She went about her motherly duties without any warmth and was completely overclouded by her shame-based mentality. And Max was born five years later after Jerome and Felicia got married because of their early pregnancy. Max wasn't planned, and he wasn't even really wanted. He was an accident. And Max is what is called, in family systems theory, the lost child. So in John Bradshaw's book, and in many other books that touch on family systems, they will capitalize things like lost child, capital L, capital C. He capitalizes surrogate spouse, and he also capitalizes little parents. And he says that he capitalizes these words in his book to show that these are rigid roles that are created by the needs of these dysfunctional family systems. It's only been since around the 80s and 90s that many different people within the mental health sector 
have started referring to and understanding families as social systems. Families are social systems that follow the laws of this organism that is the family. And the first law of social organisms is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You've probably heard that phrase before. What that means is that a family is defined by the interaction and interrelationships of its parts rather than the whole family as a sum of its parts. So a good way of looking at this holistic type principle is to think about the human body. Our body is a whole organic system composed of many different subsystems. We have our nervous system, our circulatory system, our endocrine system for our hormones. You get the gist. The human body as an organism is not the sum of its parts, but rather an interrelationship of our nervous system, circulatory system, endocrine system, etc. My body is not really my body if you cut it up into different parts. So if you cut off my legs, you wouldn't look at them and think, there's Molly. (laughs) So in a system, every part is related to the other part, and each part is a part and part of a whole. I know it sounds like I'm like the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland giving you this head fuck of a metaphor, but stay with me. In a family, the whole family as an organism is greater than any individual in the family. The family is defined by the relationship between the different parts rather than the sum of it, the parts. And so as social systems, families have different components, different rules, different roles, and needs that define that particular family. So the main component in a family system is the marriage and the relationship between the caregivers. And obviously some caregivers aren't married. So just obviously use your imagination, but let's just talk about the stereotypical family system here for the purpose of this example. So if the marriage or the partnership of the caregivers in this family system is healthy and functional, the family will be healthy and functional. If the partnership of the caregivers is dysfunctional, then the family will be dysfunctional. So in the case of Max, our our case study, his parents' marriage was incredibly dysfunctional. When the main component of a system is dysfunctional, the whole system is thrown out of whack. And when the system's out of whack, another law comes into play, the law of homeostasis. And if you took science class in school, you would have probably heard the word homeostasis. Homeostasis is basically just balance. And dynamic homeostasis means that whenever a certain part of the system's out of whack or out of balance, the rest of those members who make up that system are going to try like fucking hell to bring that system back into balance. It's just how it works. Many of the early pioneers of family systems therapy use an example of a mobile, a child's mobile to demonstrate this idea of how 
family systems try to maintain homeostasis. If you know what a mobile is, imagine a baby in a little bassinet and you know the things that they hang over the baby cradle that have lots of little things dangling off of it and you touch it and it and it kind of like twinkles in the sun there's lots of different little charms that hang off of a mobile or maybe there's little animals and you hang it over a baby's crib because it gives them something to look at it's really nice it's stimulating for them and we've all probably seen something like that so how We can use the idea of this mobile above a child's crib to illustrate a dysfunctional family system or how family systems maintain homeostasis. If you touch one part of the mobile above this baby's crib, what happens? It's not like just if you touch, say for instance, you have a mobile with like all different animals dangling off the different strings. If you touch the elephant and hit it, the rest of the pieces are affected not just the elephant is going to move, all of the different animals dangling off the mobile is going to move. If one part moves, all the parts move. The mobile, though, after a while, will always return to a state of rest eventually after the movement is over. You can also think of maybe wind chimes. If you have wind chimes, if you touch one, it starts to move, you hear the tinkling, beautiful sounds, and then after a while, as long as there's no wind the sound will stop. So in a healthy functional family, the mobile will be in gentle motion, always moving. But in a dysfunctional family, the mobile will tend to be frozen and stuck and static. So children in a dysfunctional family tend to take on extremely rigid roles. And those roles are necessary for the family's need for balance. So for example, if a child isn't wanted, that child is going to try to balance the family by not being any trouble, by being helpful, by trying to be perfect, really responsible, or maintaining a sense of invisibility. And this is what John Bradshaw called the lost child role. And he capitalizes the words lost and child to show that it is a dysfunctional role. So both Max and his older sister, Maxine, who was born, you know, out of wedlock, quote unquote, when her parents were just 16 and 18, both Max and his sister, Maxine, were lost children. Max's brother, Ralph, was the star or hero child. That's the role he was given. He super achieved to give his shame-based alcoholic family a sense of dignity. So you might be aware of someone like that in your own family system who took the role of like star or hero. And Max's older brother and sister are the ones who stepped up and became Max's little parents, little and parents capitalized because those are also dysfunctional roles. So as Max dad's Jerome became more and more into his alcoholism, he abandoned all his children. And so since the family system had no father, Ralph, the hero role child, he took on the role of dad and became Max's little father. And since the family had no partnership of caregivers, which is that chief component of the system, Ralph took on the role and became 
Felicia, Max's mom's surrogate spouse. So the system now had no money earner. So Ralph and Maxine, the big brother and sister who became Max's little parents, became super responsible caretakers. So as a child, Max was sheltered from his father's drinking by being taken to different homes of various relatives. Max was the the protected one. And we've capitalized that too, because it's a dysfunctional role. He experienced this being kind of bopped around to protect him from the reality of his family, which he really perceived as abandonment. Each and every one of these roles, the super responsible caretakers, the little parents, the hero, the protected one, the lost child, all of these roles are cover-ups for toxic shame. So Ralph covered up his shame by playing the star hero role. He also acted shameless towards Max by demanding that Max be perfect. So his big brother, the superstar, put really unrealistic expectations on Max. This is also really a child, literally raising a child. He tried to over-discipline his little brother, constantly measuring him with, you should do this, you should do that. And Ralph was a constant source of shame for his little brother, Max. And Max loved and admired his older brother, and he willingly accepted his brother's interpersonal transfer of shame. But Ralph, Max's older brother, was also extremely religious. He began to study to become a Christian minister. So Max's older brother, Ralph, started to use religious righteousness as a cover-up for his shame, and then dumped it onto his little brother, Max, by moralizing and making judgments of him. So again, you might be recognizing this as having happened to you, being judged and shamed and having someone use their religious beliefs to shame you and make judgments of you. This is not a healthy way to pursue spirituality, obviously but it plays out all the time, especially when it comes to Christian fundamentalist sects. So when the fear, hurt, and loneliness of the shame in a dysfunctional family system reaches a peak intensity, it's usually one person, oftentimes the most sensitive child, becomes what's called the family scapegoat. And scapegoat is capitalized. The function of the family scapegoat role is to reduce the pain that all the different family members are in. So at first, in our case of Max, Maxine, his older sister, the first lost child, the product of his parents' shame-fueled, you know, um, underage pregnancy situation, Maxine first took on the scapegoat role for Max's mom, Felicia. She became mom's scapegoat. Then later, Ralph became the scapegoat due to the active alcoholism that he engaged in in his teenage years before he repented and went down the super hyper religious bypassing route. So this left an open position for scapegoat in the family. And Max stepped straight into it as a very, very sensitive child. 
So Max started drinking and running away when he was 15. His first runaway was where he disappeared for four days and he actually ended up on a random beach in New Orleans. And he continued these bizarre runaway experiences. And as he acted out, the family focused more and more and more on Max. So by discussing and obsessing about Max, everyone in the family system was able to avoid their own pain because Max was the problem. So Max became the sacrificial goat in the Jewish atonement ritual. So the origin of the word scapegoat is that in Jewish atonement rituals, ancient rituals, a goat is smeared with blood and is sent into the desert. And in this way, the scapegoat is picked to atone for the Jewish people's sins. So Max became the sacrificial goat of his family. He literally went to his death, carrying the shame of several generations of his family. It gives me goosebumps. So all of the roles in Max's family system were played as a way to control the distress of Max's father's Jerome alcohol addiction and the mother Felicia's codependency addiction. You see how that is the source. So in functional families, the roles are chosen and they're very flexible. The members have the choice of giving up their roles. But in dysfunctional family systems, the roles are set in the hardest possible stone. They are rigid. We've discussed Max and the various roles in his family of origin. All the roles cover up the shame-based inner core of the family. And as each member of the system plays their rigid role, the system stays frozen. It's unchanging. No shame is brought to light. And dysfunctional families are frozen in this trance. And the core of shame is what keeps the system frozen. Everyone is in hiding. No one wants to look at the truth. And these roles, no matter which one they're playing, they cover up each person's true and authentic sense of self. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One of the most tragic parts of toxic shame is the multi-generational aspect of it. The secret and hidden dynamics of toxic shame are what gives it life. Since it's kept hidden, it can't be worked out. There's a phrase that says, families are as sick as their secrets. The secrets are what families are ashamed of. Family secrets go back for generations. They can be about suicides, homicides, incest, abortions, addictions, public humiliation, financial disaster. There are elements of these in many of our families and some of them we don't even know about. I'm reading a book right now um, that's fantastic. It's called The Daughters of Saturn. And the author, she wanted to find out about her own toxic shame and her issues with her father. And so it caused her to do an exploration of her family. And she found out that this one family member who she thought had just died in a fire, which is already traumatic enough. And this was her father's, I think her great-great-grandmother. Her great-great-grandmother actually suffered from extreme mental disturbances and lit herself on fire in the house, killing her husband too. And so this was a family secret had been hidden for multiple generations and they didn't want to talk about it. And this was a source of toxic shame. So the pain and suffering of shame generate automatic and unconscious defenses. Sigmund Freud called these defenses by various different names. He called them denial, idolization of the parents, repression of emotions, and also dissociation from emotions. But what's most important to talk about is that we can't know what we don't know. Denial, repression, dissociation, derealization, idealization. Once we form these things, they become unconscious survival mechanisms. And because they're unconscious, we lose touch with the shame and hurt and pain that they actually are there to cover up. We can't heal what we can't feel. That's another phrase. So without recovery, without shining a light on these things, our toxic shame is getting carried for multiple generations. So let's continue with this exploration of Max's family. Max's mom, Felicia, as we already described, came from an alcoholic and incestuous family. Felicia's mom was an untreated, shame-based codependent in really serious stages of her addiction. So this would have been Max's grandma. She was agoraphobic, and agoraphobia is when you're kind of, you're 
terrified of leaving the house and she was a hypochondriac and hypochondriac means that you are always convinced that you're going to get sick and die. So Max's mom, Felicia's father enabled her mother's agoraphobic and hypochondriac shame by allowing her to engage in this behavior. He also set Felicia up in that surrogate spouse role, which led to her eventual molestation by her father. So Max's mom, Felicia, was an untreated emotional and physical incest victim who had repressed her own sexuality and carried her mother's unresolved incest issues. And so Max's mom unconsciously acted it out by being almost seductive to both of her children, Ralph and Max. And Ralph, as the oldest son, became Felicia's surrogate husband, repeating this emotional incest. Do you see how this pattern of parents treating their children more so as partners and forcing adult roles onto them when they should be allowed to be children. So Max's mom, Felicia, idealized her father and enabled his severe codependency and work addiction. And Max's mom, Felicia's three sisters, all married dysfunctional men. And each daughter carried out their mother's unresolved sexualized rage. So Felicia's mom, Max's grandma, continuously talked shit on men, even from her deathbed. And Max reported that as a child, he remembered that one of his grandma's favorite sayings was, men just want one thing. They always think with their dick. So this statement said in the presence of a young man is actually sexually abusive. Yes. Max's big brother, Ralph, and Max himself were both victimized by their mom's unconscious sexual rage and contempt for men. And I can relate to this because I have just spoken previously in an episode about how my own sexual abuse and experience with grooming for a long time made me hate all men. I split on men. And after working in the sex work industry, after my abuse, that just was driven home even more because I was completely surrounded by men who represented that archetype. And if I hadn't done my work, I would probably still be fostering this rage and contempt for all men. So back to our vignette with Max, when Max's mom, Felicia, got pregnant as a 17-year-old girl, she was acting out her mother's unresolved sexual shame. And then Max reenact his mom's acting out by getting his first wife, Bridget, pregnant when he was 17. So let's talk a little bit about Max's father, Jerome. Jerome's mother who is Max's paternal grandma on the other side, witnessed her own mom burn to death when she was just seven years old. In addition to that, she was abandoned by her father. And so Max's paternal grandma was sent to live with her two aunts, 
who also fostered this incredible deep hatred for men. And so Max's grandmother rebelled against this situation by continually acting out, right? Acting out sexually. She started acting out sexually at a very early age. And it's easy to theorize that maybe this promiscuous, I hate that word because I feel like it's only used with women. You don't really, you hear about womanizing men, but you don't ever really hear about promiscuous men. It's just women. But this promiscuity by Max's grandma was an acting out of some form of sexual abuse. So Max really had no information on his paternal grandma's side of the family. So this is just a theory, but Max greatly disliked his grandma and had never even seen his grandfather. So Jerome's mom, who is Max's grandma, (laughs) married at the age of 16 and her husband died tragically before he was 30. He was electrocuted while working at a power plant. So Max's grandma received a large sum of money as a surviving widow. And through her grief, she became an alcoholic and partied for the next few years on this money. So after a few years, she married Max's dad, Jerome's father. And after seven years or so, he divorced her. And this is when Max's dad was just eight years old. So Max's father only saw his own father twice from that point on. And at one point, Max's dad hitchhiked 300 miles to see his dad, only to be disappointed by being put on a bus and sent all the way back home. I can't even imagine the trauma of that. And the other time was just a chance run-in with his dad. And later, Jerome, Max's dad, read of his father's death in a newspaper He went to the funeral of his father and he was asked to leave, being told that it was too awkward for him to be there because his father had been remarried and had three children by his second marriage. So Max's father, Jerome, grew up with no father and he was enmeshed with his alcoholic, sex-addicted mom. And so Max's dad was his mother's emotional incest victim. Max, the main centerpiece of our story, would then act out all of these multi-generational abandonment patterns in his habit of running away. Both of his parents, Jerome and Felicia, had been abandoned by their parents of the same sex. Both of them were used for their parents' needs, rather than their parents being there for them as children in their needs. So now that we understand the true dynamics of both of Max's parents, what happened next in Max's life? Well, he met his first wife, Bridget, in college, and she was the child of an alcoholic. And she was also the apple of her dad's eye. She was an only child. She was beautiful and smart. And she played the dysfunctional family role of the star. And she was cross-generationally bonded with both of her parents. Max 
was the third child in the birth order in his family. It's very commonly said that third children often carry the dynamics of their parents' marriage. So Max literally reenacted his parents' pregnancy and early marriage. He later abandoned his children as his father had abandoned him. Max felt the loneliness and isolation his parents experienced in their own marriage. So Max's first wife, Bridget, was the caretaker in her family. She was the star. She literally took care of her father's sadness, deep-seated isolation, and depression. And she did this by always being up and positive and cheerful. She was a high school cheerleader. And this role became so ingrained that she lost contact with any part of her authentic self because she spent so much time and energy feeling like she needed to be up, up, up and bring up this depressive alcoholic father. Maybe you can relate to this. So on one occasion, Max apparently asked to see John Bradshaw, his therapist, because of Bridget and Max's oldest daughter. And so John had suggested to Max that Bridget seemed to be in this enabling relationship with their daughter. Bridget, who Max's first wife, who was in this star dysfunctional role and had an experience with an alcoholic dad, she had bailed out her daughter multiple times on numerous occasions and was always giving their daughter money that they couldn't afford. So eventually Bridget came and saw John, the therapist, and John reports in his work that he didn't know who he was talking to. He said that he felt very uneasy when he was speaking to Bridget because she had a vocabulary that he described as parrot-like and that it felt like she was just acting. He couldn't see genuine vulnerability. So her role was so sealed even as someone who had left her family system and was in a new marriage, she had no idea that her entire persona was an act. So now Max has his own family system, right? We've explored his generational trauma and now he's a dad with a wife. And this dysfunctional system looks like this. The oldest child of Max and Bridget was clearly a lost child who gave their all to take care of everybody but each of the other children was acting out the family's shame. The middle sons of Max and Bridget were severely alcoholic. The fourth child was also alcoholic and also addicted to prescription pills. And the youngest son was acting out Max's internalized rage in other criminal behavior. The point of talking in such depth about this example is you have to understand the power of the multi-generational patterns in our case study of Max and his background. You can see how Max reenacted the patterns of his parents and his grandparents on both sides and passed them on to his children. And in Max's five-generation genogram that John describes in his book, there are five generations of alcoholism, five generations of physical and emotional abandonment and codependency. There are four generations of sexual abuse and sexual addictions. 
There are early pregnancies, shame-based early pregnancies. All early pregnancies aren't necessarily bad. There are multiple marriages and divorces. There are multiple cases of serious abandonment. Max was abandoned by his father, Jerome, at exactly the same age Jerome was abandoned by his father. Max died at exactly the same age as his father. Max's five-generation family map is very, very similar to other shame-based dysfunctional families. So at this point, you have heard enough to make it quite obvious that a major source of toxic shame is the family system, but not only that, the multi-generational patterns of unresolved secrets of the past. You might have seen yourself in some of these roles. You might see your parents and your brothers and sisters in some of these roles. And as I described in previous episodes, I'm doing a lot of reading about something called family constellations therapy. And a lot of it is going back at least three generations in your family and really becoming a detective and investigating the patterns of abuse and addiction and abandonment. And you'll start to better understand why you are the way you are and begin to really put these lost family members of our past in their proper places, acknowledging them, maybe trying to find some sense of acceptance even if we can't completely forgive and moving on and realizing that we no longer want to carry those baggages of shame. More importantly though, is that these families, these shame-based families are created by other shame-based people who find and procreate with and marry each other, who scramble their DNA up with one another. Each of these different shame-based people look to and expect the other person to take care of and assume the role of parent to the child within them. Each person in a shame-based couple is incomplete and has that black hole of neediness within them that they expect to come from the outside. And that black hole of neediness is rooted in these shame-based people's unmet childhood needs. And when two of what John Bradshaw calls adult children, these people with unmet childhood needs, shame-based black hole inside their souls, trying to like fill it and get other people to be their mommy or daddy unconsciously. When two of these people, the adult children meet and fall in love with one another, the child in each of them looks to the other to fill their needs. And since being in love is this state of fusing together, these hurt inner children within these shame-based people that choose to scramble their DNA up with one another become fused as they did in the early stages of infancy. Each shame-based person feels a sense of being one and complete. And since that early honeymoon phase of in love is always erotic and passionate, each feels just so excited about this early sexuality and this all-encompassing love has no boundaries. 
And being in love is just as powerful as a drug. They say we start to finally feel whole that can make a lot of sense. How many of you reach out and send me voicemails of saying like, when you first are with someone, it's like, you just want to marry them. You just want to be around them all the time. It's because you're filling that hole with another person. But the problem is, is that this state can't last. And you probably know that because you've experienced it. It's like when we get the ick, right? Or we realize, oh, it's not the same. This ecstatic state of in love honeymoon phase consciousness is pretty selective. When we are in love in the beginning in that honeymoon phase, these two people focus on being intrigued by the newness of each other. But the problem is, is that eventually these real differences begin to emerge and the two family systems that they came from start to rear their ugly shame-based heads. And now the battle begins, right? Who is going to take care of the broken inner child within who? Whose family rules are going to win? The more shame-based the person is, the more each other's differences will be intolerable to one another. So that's where you get kind of that sense of like, if you really love me, you just go along with my way. So each family system that is shame-based has different categories of rules. There are rules about socializing, about celebrating big events, about what kind of touching is okay, about how sexuality is handled, rules about even being sick and maintaining health, rules about jobs and vacations, rules about how to maintain the house and how to think about money. But the most important rules that make huge impact on us are the rules that shame-based families make about feelings, about interpersonal communication, and about how to be parents. Toxic shame, how it is consciously transferred, is by these shaming rules. So when you're in a shame-based family, the rules consciously shame all of the members of the family. But in general, children receive the major brunt of the shame. Power is usually a cover-up for shame. Power is frequently hierarchical. So your dad can yell at anyone, right? Mom can yell at anyone but dad. And honestly, the roles are reversed sometimes. Maybe mom is the the angry, rage-filled one and dad fills the role of trying to keep the peace and kind of enables the mom and doesn't protect the kids, but it's always hierarchical. So there's usually one parent that everybody tiptoes around. And it, the same goes with siblings. The oldest sibling can yell at anyone but mom and dad. And then what happens with the youngest, right? This is why sometimes you think about young kids who are in dysfunctional family systems, even some like serial killers, maybe they start torturing small animals because think about it. That's the hierarchy. They have to go below themselves. So what are some of the dysfunctional family rules that can 
continue to perpetuate toxic shame. I want you to listen to these and I want you to start thinking about your own family system. Maybe your current marriage, if you have kids and your parents and your own family system growing up, and then maybe the parents of your parents, your grandparents on both sides, your mom and your dad, and start thinking about this. Really start letting it marinate. So the first rule in dysfunctional family systems is control. So this rule says that you need to be in control of all interactions, all your feelings, and all of your behavior at all times. So control, according to John Bradshaw, is a huge defense strategy for that enables toxic shame. Another rule is perfectionism. And mind you, they, you don't have to have all these rules. These are just some of them, and they can come in various different combinations depending on your family, depending on the trauma that happened intergenerationally. So perfectionism, if you are operating under this dysfunctional family rule, everything needs to be right in everything you do. And the perfectionist rule always involves some kind of measurement that's being imposed. And the fear and avoidance of this negative outcome if you're not perfect is the main directing principle of your entire life. So the members living according to this perfectionism rule are living according to some idealized, externalized image. And the thing is, no one can measure up to that, right? Because of part of healthy shame is realizing that you are not more than human. You are human and humans are not perfect. Another dysfunctional rule is blame. So whenever things don't turn out as planned, which is literally inevitable, not everything can turn out as you plan. You blame yourself or blame other people. And blame is just another defense cover up for toxic shame. Blame maintains the balance in a dysfunctional system when control has broken down. As you saw in the case of Max, it's easier to say, this is the problem child, fix this child, because then we don't have to talk about the dysfunctional family system. So we're going to do an episode on the five freedoms. I am going to be doing that later um, on the podcast, but another dysfunctional family rule is denial of the five freedoms. The five freedoms were first discussed by Virginia Satir, who is an early pioneer of family systems therapy. And the five freedoms describe full personal functionality. Each of the five freedoms has to do with a basic human power. And these are the power to perceive, the power to think, the power to interpret, the power to feel, the power to want, the power to choose, and the power to imagine. So in shame-based family systems, for example, the perfectionist rule stops you from the full expression of these powers to think, interpret, feel, want, choose, and imagine, right? It says you shouldn't perceive, think, feel, desire, or imagine in the way that you do. You should do these things the way the perfectionistic, dysfunctional, shame-based family rule says you should do it. And it doesn't feel right to you, but you try to shove yourself into this role. 
And as I mentioned before, I'm going to be doing a whole episode on the five freedoms because it's a really, really important topic. And I love the work of Virginia Satir. In the father wound episode, we actually did the visualization that I included in that, which I believe was available only to my premium subscribers. It was inspired by the work of Virginia Satir and owning all of our different parts. So what's another rule in shame-based family systems? The no talk rule. So the no talk rule prohibits the full expression of your feelings, needs, or wants. So in shame-based families, the members want to hide their feelings, hide their needs and wants. And so because of this, no one speaks about their loneliness or their sense of self-isolation. Another rule don't make mistakes. What's the purpose of this role? Well, mistakes reveal our vulnerable, flawed human self. And to acknowledge that we've made a mistake is to open ourselves up to scrutiny. So to cover up our mistakes, and if someone else makes a mistake in a dysfunctional family system, we shame them. Another rule is unreliability, right? So when we grow up in toxic family systems that are shame-based, a rule could be that you don't expect reliability in relationships. Don't trust anyone. And if you don't trust anyone, you won't be disappointed. So if parents of children have this rule, the parents likely didn't get their developmental dependency needs met and will then therefore not be there for their own children to depend on. And this perpetuates that distrust cycle. So these rules, it's not like they were spoken about. It's not like the parents usually say, all right, we have a don't make mistakes rule here, right? It's not like they're posted up on the the refrigerator side of the fridge (laughs) with a magnet. But They are the operating principles that rule from the shadows, shame-based dysfunctional families, and all of the interpersonal relationships around them. And they continue this cycle of shame for generations as we described in this really painful vignette and case study with Max from John's book. So the parenting rules in most Western families create massive amounts of shame, period. So when you add addiction, incest, abuse, and neglect on top of that, you get high amounts of dysfunctionality. Author Alice Miller, who we've described and mentioned previously in this series, summed up these rules under what she calls poisonous pedagogy. And I may do an entire episode on poisonous pedagogy as well. So These parenting rules in the West state this. Number one, adults are the masters of the dependent child. Adults determine in like almost a godlike fashion what is right and what is wrong. The third rule of poisonous pedagogy is the child is responsible for the parent's anger. The fourth is the parents must always be shielded. Five is the child's life-affirming feelings pose a threat to the adult. And lastly, 
the last rule of poisonous pedagogy is the child's will needs to be broken as soon as possible. A perfect example of this is a documentary that I just watched, which was devastating. It's called Shiny Happy People, and it's on Amazon. And it features the sect of Christian fundamentalism started by an American Christian minister named Bill Gothard. And this particular sect was called IBLP, and it was called the Institute in Basic Life Principles. And essentially, one of the main principles in this sect of Christian fundamentalism, which was happening and still is happening, is about breaking the will of your child. And in IBLP, there was also a man named Michael Pearl and his wife, Debbie Pearl, who created a book called How to Train Up a Child. And To Train Up a Child is a 1994 book on child rearing written and self-published by this fundamentalist preacher, Michael Pearl, and his wife, Debbie Pearl. And they are most well known for encouraging physical and psychological abuse. And this book is associated with Bill Gothard and the IBLP sect of Christian fundamentalism. To Train Up a Child, this man's book focuses heavily on Michael Pearl's advice to parents to strike their children, including infants, with rods, pipes, or wooden switches, which are like sticks. And I come from a family who, my dad's side, was all in the deep south, and all of my family were beaten with like rods and switches. So this stuff goes deep. The book itself, Should Train Up a Child, opens with, switch your kids. When you tell some parents they need to switch their children, switch meaning beat, right? Beat with the stick. They respond, I would if I could find someone to trade. Detailed advice on such switching is found throughout the book, especially in the chapter that's called Applying the Rod. Many different accounts of the book also referred to the Pearl's methods as spanking, but the Pearls are actually explicit that children should not be struck with a hand unless they're under the age of one. Instead, they write that children should be struck with a rod, a switch, or a belt, even a pipe, or a plumbing line, because even infants, and I'm quoting from the book, lie about their conditions and needs. <laughs> And they recommend that parents start to use these types of punishments with older infants and toddlers and any children over the age of one. And the book tells parents to use objects like a 0.25 inch or six millimeter diameter plastic tube to spank their children to quote, break their will. And in this documentary, Shiny Happy People, it's actually not only ex the exploration of IBLP and books like To Train Up a Child and Bill Gothard, people who also were featured in this documentary are the Duggar family. Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar were featured in a TLC show about all of their children and Jim Bob and Michelle were actually members of this sect of Christian fundamentalism called IBLP, and unsurprisingly, we are now just seeing the depth and breadth 
of dysfunction and abuse that's playing out in that family system. And if you want to watch Shiny Happy People, go ahead. It was actually a really well done documentary, but I bring it up because it's a perfect example of the thriving rules of poisonous pedagogy that are still playing out here in the West, especially here in America. And parents are literally going to Christian fundamentalist churches still and feeling like the parents are the authoritarians, break the will of your child. And even though not all sects of fundamentalist Christianity are as extreme as IBLP, this belief, especially with our parents and our grandparents and back generations, this is just the way it was. So these types of beliefs about parents' absolute power actually come from the time of kings and monarchs and royalty. They are pre-democratic and they are operating based upon a world of eternal laws. And this was the world of Isaac Newton and Descartes. We're going back into like philosophy and back into the past so that we can understand. But this type of worldview has been shown to be incredibly harmful, but this is the toxic soup that many of us grew up in, and so did our parents. So poisonous pedagogy justifies highly abusive methods for suppressing children's innate spontaneity, and they use physical beatings, lying, manipulation, scare tactics, withdrawing love, isolation, and coercion to the point of torturing children. And these methods are toxically shaming. And the craziest part about it is, is a parent could think, I'm a good Christian, I go to my job, and I provide for my family, and I don't know why my kid is so fucked up. You know what I'm saying? You know what I am saying? It's still playing out. And I take on that accent because I've heard this myself. It happens. I grew up in middle America where I heard that time and time and time again. So that's it for today in terms of the first part of the podcast. I hope this has been helpful for you. We're now on part four of this, and now you've really seen how all of the things we discussed in parts one through three actually play out generationally, and hopefully you understand how we're building upon this to develop a deep, deep comprehension of these things. And hopefully by this point, the gears are turning. You're starting to shine a light on some of this stuff. Maybe you see aspects of Max, the case study from John's book in your own family. I encourage you, if you're able to, to start doing some investigating into different generations of your family. Look up family genograms. You can do that and you can even find templates for family genograms and start filling them out to start really investigating into some of these themes. Ask yourself what role you played in your family. What role did your parents play and your grandparents? 
are you like max seeing some of these same things play out did key traumatic things in your life coincide with key traumatic things in your parents life are you repeating some of these same dysfunctional behaviors and if you are try not to beat yourself up let's not add shame on shame on shame on shame let's realize that this is universal these dynamics are playing out for everyone everyone show me a person with no shame in terms of no toxic shame i'm sure there's lots of shameless people we've already discussed about the negative aspects of that but it's very rare that you're going to come across someone who is just perfectly formed because again we're all human that's why in psychology they say that you just need good enough parents because the idea is that no perfect parent exists and i don't know about you but doing the research for this shame series and really sitting with it especially after the mother and father wound episodes that i did it's really getting me to zoom out i'm really starting to alchemize this stuff i'm starting to not feel such serious anger and rage because i realize how generational all of this is on the next episode we're going to be talking about how these patterns and the family roots of toxic shame turn into shame as a state of being we also dive more deeply into abandonment trauma and how physical absence of the caregivers and emotional abandonment impact us as children this exploration is going to be incredibly powerful for anyone who identifies with the traits of borderline personality disorder and you have been like whoa abandonment is a huge thing for me i have gotten waves of feedback for my episode of exploring the mother wound through abandonment and fairy tales and so this next one is going to be powerful for you too so until next time that's it for our shame portion of the episode now we're going to be diving into the first part of the premium episode which will be open to public listeners and then fade out and if you want to unlock it you can become a premium submarine Otherwise, you can just enjoy this little preview of the premium portion of our episode. See you next time. All right, everyone, we're back and I changed my mind. You know how I said on this episode, maybe in the future I'll do a premium part on the five freedoms by Virginia Satir. I thought what better way to provide additional value this week to my premium subscribers than to explore the five freedoms it's the perfect companion for our toxic shame work rather than me doing this as a separate episode in the future so the famous family therapist virginia satir has also been sort of affectionately known as the mother of family systems therapy and she's made incredibly amazing contributions to our understanding of family dynamics and healing dysfunctional family systems. So she termed the five freedoms, which she believes can be really helpful to people wanting to move towards more peaceful relationships with themselves to become 
parents who are cycle breakers and creating healthy systems, whether they choose to have kids or not. So Virginia Satir believed that if we can foster these simple principles into our relationships with ourselves and with the people we love, it can help us maintain peace and harmony. It can help alchemize toxic shame and so many more amazing benefits. So if we as people, as parents, as friends, as lovers, as teachers, if we return back to harmony using healthy conflict resolution skills, the happier and more secure family members and kids can be. So if we're really focused on reparenting ourselves and healing from toxic shame, or if you're a parent now and you really want to focus on healthy development of your children, fostering emotional intelligence, these different freedoms by Virginia Satir can really serve as almost like your compass for health in a family system. So as we described in this episode, the five different freedoms are the freedom to see and hear or perceive what is here and now rather than what was, what will be, or what should be. Another freedom is the freedom to think what we think rather than what we think we should think. The third freedom is to feel what we feel rather than what we should feel. The freedom to want or desire and choose what we want rather than what we should want. And the freedom to imagine our own self-actualization rather than playing a rigid role that was given to us or always playing it safe. So John Bradshaw once said, these five freedoms amount to full self-acceptance and integration. And he believed that enormous personal power results from these freedoms. All of our energy, if we embrace these freedoms, is actually free to flow outward in order to cope with the world and getting our needs met. And this allows us our full freedom, which amounts to full functionality. When I was doing a visualization a while back when I was in a really hard time and I asked myself, what do I want? What do I actually want above all else? And all I was sobbing and crying and doing some of this grief work. The only thing that kept popping into my mind is I want to be free. I want to be free. And that was before I had even heard of the five freedoms. So the five freedoms essentially serve to foster authentic communication as opposed to the kind of all right everyone you know what that means that's it for today's free version of back from the borderline to unlock the full version of this episode as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content visit backfromtheborderline.com or click the link in the episode description to become a premium submarine today Not only do my premium submarines receive loads of additional content each month, but the support of my subscribers allows me to focus on podcasting full-time and invest more in research and production quality. If you're not ready to become a premium submarine or can't afford to do so, that's okay too. You can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or sharing an episode with someone you care about. To make sure you're notified each time I drop a new episode, follow Back From The Borderline on your favorite podcast app. 
I also share daily photos, quotes, and additional reflections and resources with my community on Instagram. You can follow me there at Back From The Borderline. Also, as you may have heard already, I started a new podcast for anyone who is obsessed with mystical and magical things and struggles with nighttime anxiety. It is an adult bedtime podcast called Night Night Bitch. So if you want to check that out, you can do that by searching Night Night Bitch on your favorite podcast app or going to my website and clicking the link at the bottom. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weaknesses, your inner chaos, and your disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. Anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.